We continue our studies tonight in the 20 centuries of church history, and tonight we come to the 11th century, which would be the 10 hundreds for those of you keeping track at home. And I want to talk about four things tonight. Medieval biblical scholarship as it begins growing. One of the most, probably the most important event in the Middle Ages for Christianity, the investiture controversy and Gregory, Pope Gregory VII. Then we have the First Crusade, and then we have one of the great theologians of church history, Anselm of Canterbury. As you can tell, the 11th century is packed with wonderful things. Well, let's start just a little bit with medieval biblical scholarship. You're starting to get centers of learning. Uh, civilizations slowly making its way forward, and you start getting some Bible commentaries. I just want to mention some. There's a, a Fulbert of, Char- of Chartres' commentary on the whole Bible, Bruno of Würzburg's commentary on the Psalms. You know, we're always happy in church history when people are reflecting on the Scriptures, and they're starting to do that. Uh, Peter Damien, who is a major uh, a reformer of the Roman Catholic Church in, in Rome, uh, use the scriptures, opposing moral decadence among priests. And then you have Bruno the Carthusian's commentary on Psalms and the Apostle Paul. Now, one of the things that goes on now is you develop, as the scribes are doing their work, what is called the gloss. Namely, that scribes, paper is still very scarce. And so scribes will make notes about the text of scripture in the margins of the page that they are writing on and sometimes those notes end up in the text of the Bible. That's one of my beefs with uh, study Bibles. I'm not against study Bibles. There's some great study Bibles so long as we keep the notes out of the text. And I've had people when I was talking to them say, no, you can't say that because my study Bible says this. And then they'll point not to the text of Scripture but to the study notes. And I always want to say, let's observe that hard line. Those notes are not into the text. Well, that's what glosses were. Uh, it's the first use of chapter divisions in the 11th century. Uh, prior to that, the way you talked about the Bible was you'd say, you know in John's Gospel, right after the feeding of the 5,000 and then before the, the Feast of the Lights, uh, and so they would, they would talk about events and they actually knew the Bible better. It's undoubtedly, it's been helpful for us to have citations, chapter and verse, Uh, But that's an 11th century event. Now, unfortunately, you have a great emphasis on what is called the allegorical interpretation of Scripture. And so the question is always, uh, what's the right way to interpret the Scriptures? How are things fulfilled? And allegory makes rather fanciful, certainly arbitrary connections. You've probably heard sermons like this where it's connecting to the text, but the point being made is not obviously that of the text. Maybe the classic example is the parable of the Good Samaritan. An allegory would say uh, the innkeeper is the apostle Peter, and the, uh, the, the man who helps the man is the apostle Paul. The two pieces of silver are the Old Testament and New Testament, so on and so forth. The, the text itself doesn't make the claims that people are associating, usually out of their own circumstances, Uh, what it really means and there's symbols of being used in a wrong way that that still goes on today well let's get right to the big event of the 11th century which is the investiture controversy now the kind of the big theme that we've been working with at least since the 8th century is after the fall of the Roman Empire the church is the only institution left in the Western Empire And so they are looking around for political military partners, 
particularly now that the church is landowners, um, who will protect them from barbarians, particularly the Lombards, a very violent tribe who controlled most of Italy. And if you remember, they had, uh, they had made, a con- uh, they'd made a compact with uh, Charlemagne and, the, and the, the, the kingdom of the Franks. After that, we saw last century, the New German Empire. And so now they have this marriage between the church and the state, the church and the prince would probably be the better way to put it. And the question is, how does that work out? Well, in the 10th century, under the German emperors, the control of the church began to pass to the the kings and princes and feudal lords. Now, one reason for that is because the church controlled so much of the land through gifts piously given to the church, monasteries and things like that. A lot of the populace even lives on lands owned by the church. And so the control of the church involves control of a lot of the economy and a lot of the land. And so uh, it starts to be the case in Germany particularly that the, the bishops and the abbots are Germans and they were appointed by the German king and they think in that sort of way. Now meanwhile back in Italy because the papacy is so powerful, you have rival factions in Italy and in the city of Rome who begin uh, appointing their own popes. And this throws confusion into everything. Let me give you some examples from 1046 to 1040, 1044 to 1046. There actually were three different popes in Rome claiming authority, each of them representing a power faction. And here's how it worked in 1044. Uh, the city of Rome, the power brokers, rebelled against Pope Benedict IX because he was just so scandalously immoral. And so Sylvester III was made pope. But Benedict had political allies. And so they rallied and they put him back in power. But Benedict was tired of being pope. So he actually sold the papacy to a third party, Gregory VI, but then shortly after his mind, he changed his mind and reclaimed the papacy. Turned out he liked being pope more than not being pope. And so when Henry III, the new uh, Holy Roman Emperor, the German king, uh, comes down to be crowned, he needs to be crowned by the pope to have the full legitimacy, he doesn't know which pope to go to. There's actually three popes in Rome to manage. Well, he was a very godly and wise ruler, and so he decided he would square this away. He calls a synod outside of Rome. He deposes all of those popes in in Italy, in Rome, and he brings in a a good German. His name's Clement II, and this is called the cleansing of the papacy, and he makes him pope. Well, this is clearly uh, the office in turmoil. Now, in 1049 then, another pope, led by Clement, starting with a series of popes, there then is a major attempt to reform the papacy. It's kind of a disgrace. It's weak. And so you have some remarkable men, uh, some of these popes and their supporters, who want to reform the papacy. It starts with Leo IX, and he reforms the church, seeking it to be a truly Christian institution with the highest of standards. We'd applaud him for that. But he also needed to free the papacy from the Roman aristocrats. And so instead of of the pope being selected by the aristocrats, he formed, this is the forming of the College of Cardinals. The cardinals were, now the cardinals are the super archbishops 
Uh, they're spread around the world. There's several cardinals in the United States. And when the Pope dies, they have the College of Cardinals. You may have seen it very dramatically. When the, everybody watches for a certain color smoke to go from their chimney. That means the cardinals have selected a new Pope. Well, that's an 11th century innovation. It Basically, it was the bishops of the leading churches in the area of Rome and the staff of the Pope. Those were the cardinals. Um, and, and now it's done that, that the church, through the cardinals, will select the popes. Now he also wanted that, so that's freeing the papacy from the moneyed political power brokers in Rome. But he also wants to free the papacy from the emperor. And so he holds a series of synods in which the pope is presiding and the emperor is not invited. Now you're going to, why did the emperor take that sitting down? Because the emperor was a child. Henry died, and they were in a state of weakness, and the Pope is exploiting that weakness. Now, one of his key leaders is Cardinal Hildebrand, who becomes Pope Gregory VII, and he began ramping up the claims uh, for the Pope as the vicar of, of Christ in the seat of Peter. They actually create the doctrine that the Pope is the incarnation of Peter. It's kind of a, not, not kind of, it is a corruption of the incarnation of Christ, God the Son becoming man. They were teaching, no, well, the current Pope is the incarnation of Peter. I am Peter's vicar. He lives in my body. But so now, so far, you have wanted to, they're vigorous reformers. They want the church to be free from the political control of the Italian aristocrats. They want the church to be independent from the control of the emperor, but that's not enough. Oh, no, no. They believe the church needs to be in control of all of society. They want to impose church order over the civil readers. And that gave birth, and see, it's Hildebrand and the investiture controversy that really gives birth to the Roman Catholic Church that we'll see in the 16th century in the Protestant Reformation. Now, one thing Leo condemned, we would agree with this, is the practice of what's called simony or simony. That is for Simon the Magi, in, uh, Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8, who tried to buy office in the church. Simony is the selling of a church office. He condemned that. Now, interesting, along the way, Leo, in 1054, he excommunicated Michael Cerule, let me say this right, Michael Cerularius, who was the uh, patriarch of the Eastern Church. And this was, again, over the filioque controversy. And this is the date we give, 1054, to the final and ultimate cleavage between the Eastern and the Western Church. Of course, the patriarch responded by removing the name of the Pope and therefore of the Western Church from the diptych, the, 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 the marker of all the churches under Eastern Orthodoxy. Both sides effectively excommunicate the other. Not a great moment. Now, remember, they're trying to fight, among other things, immorality. And Hildebrand and, and this whole group of men, they want to elevate the church above the moral level of the people, and they conclude that celibacy <clears throat> is a way to do this. Now, they certainly didn't bring up celibacy. Going all the way back to the 4th century with the, with the Antioch uh, aesthetics, there's been a sense that not to engage in sex is, is, is spiritually pure. 
Actually, that's an unbiblical idea. There's nothing unspiritual about sexual relations between a husband and a wife, but there's this idea, this moral idea against sex. And so you really start dating the mandate for the celibacy of the priesthood in the 11th century. By the way, uh, there was a considerable unhappiness about it, as one would suspect. Uh, the powerful Milan group was, uh, was bitterly opposed to this. They pointed out that Peter... Uh, had a mother-in-law. That means Peter had a wife. That means Peter was not celibate, and they had a big clash. Well, Rome won over that. It's quite a tragedy. Uh, the church has often mistakenly put a sort of stigma on sexual intimacy when sex is a gift from God. Uh, it's sex within marriage that is holy. Uh, but uh, you think of the poor Roman Catholic priests today, many of them who are, who are put into this unhealthy lifestyle and uh, not being able to have a spouse, being unable to engage in the sexuality God designed. It really comes from this spiritualization of the 11th century. Well, Leo was captured in battle against the Normans in 1054. He died in prison the next day. We, we start to get, it brings in the Normans because you had the Franks, I'll do it this way, the Franks, French, you have the Germans, but now you have the Norsemen who conquer Normandy, and they're quite a strong military force. In, the, uh, it's, uh, in this century, that you have William the Conqueror, who is, of course, a Norman, a Norseman from western France, having settled there. Well, let's look at Hildebrand himself. I have a picture of him. Gregory the Seventh. he's Ill, in 1073. He becomes Pope Gregory the Seventh. He was physically weak. But he was a man of great passion, had an indomitable will. One of his colleagues, and I don't think he met his criticism, Peter Damiani, called him a holy Satan. And he wasn't saying he was evil. He was saying he was just super intense. When this guy locks his eyes on you, you're, you're dominated. He had a burning zeal for the church's purity. I, I would point out he did not have a burning zeal for the church's doctrine. And so again, the, the Bible is put into the back burner, but it's the, the moral purity, the spiritual eminence of the church. Uh, and he loathed the secular kings, the German emperors and the Frankish kings, as he called them dressed-up murderers. You know, they're, they're rough men. He's this super-refined, super-educated uh, person in the Roman Curia. And so his theory is well, the only way for us to have civilization the church just takes over everything. And we need to tell them what to do, and then they'll do what we say. Uh, now, prior to this, if you remember, even back to Henry III, it was the godly kings. And there were, Henry III was a godly man. They were the ones who were, over, who were overseeing the church, trying to get the church to stop being so corrupt. Well, now uh, it's assumed that the opposite needs to be the case. Now, it's uh, Gregory VII, or Hildebrand, who really brings in the new language. Prior to him, the main way of thinking about the church on earth now versus the church in heaven was the pilgrim church versus the church at rest. We don't really talk that way these days. Uh, he brings in the idea, which we still use today, those Christians who are alive now, that's the church militant. And the church in heaven is a church triumphant. And that reflects his idea of being a very militant pope. He also had a, a very great heart for the poor. Um, well, we have the investiture controversy that starts. So let's just start with Hildebrand's 1075 papal decree. 
The Roman church was founded by God alone. Only the Roman, pe- only the Roman pope, or, or, or the Roman church, only the people of the Roman Catholic Church are rightly called Catholic. Catholic means universal. It's, it's essentially a word meaning Christian. You're part of the Catholic Church. It means you're part of the one true church. And he's the one who says, well, that means you're Roman Catholic. Uh, we agree. We believe in the one holy Catholic Church. We don't believe it's the Roman Church. Uh, nothing wrong in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed when we say we believe in one holy Catholic Church. We do. Uh, universal Church. But they would say, well, that is the Roman Church. Um, he argued that the, the, only the Pope can depose bishops, that the Pope's feet must be kissed by princes. So that's setting up a relationship. Uh, no council is valid without the Pope's approval. Now bear in mind, part of the checks and balances has been the Pope's really weren't all powerful because you could form councils and the councils of bishops could, could oppose the Pope. Well, he says no, no more of that. That, that won't go away, however. The Pope is above reproach, cannot be judged by anyone. The Roman Church has never erred, cannot ever err, never will err until all eternity. Now that's a patently absurd comment, even from his own time, because he himself would criticize many popes before him. Um, you know, Martin Luther will make hay of this when the Reformation comes, because he will point out how popes contradict each other. And so the claim that the church cannot err is patently in error. And uh, it's a bit of a problem for them. The, the Roman Pope is sanctified by the merits of St. Peter. Now, apart from the dubious relationship of the, of the Roman Pontiff to St. Peter, here you have the merit theology. So you need saints. This is the medieval church moving towards the Reformation. You'll be saved based on the merits of some super person who, who achieved bonus points, and, and St. Peter, we're told, was one of those. And so it's the merits, not the, <coughs> not the merits of Christ fulfilling God's law on our behalf and bearing our sins upon the cross. It doesn't have anything directly to do with Christ, of course. It's about the saints like St. Peter. Uh, anyone not in conformity with the Roman Pope, therefore, is not a Christian. Uh, by the way, it's interesting because Pope John Paul II set that aside, and Vatican II waffles on that point. Uh, uh, pope Benedict, uh, the, the, the pope before our current Pope Francis, who's a very conservative Catholic, Cardinal Ratzinger, he reinstated the idea. I actually appreciate it when Catholics are honest about what the Catholic Church teaches. The, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that only Roman Catholics are saved. Well, here's the investiture controversy. I apologize, I have a lot on this slide, but there's a lot to say. Here, we'll just start with this. Pope Gregory VII, Hildebrand, forbade kings to invest bishops or abbots. Now, those are your two big church players. A bishop is the head of a church in a city. The abbot is the head of a monastery. The, 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 the churches and the monasteries are where the action is. And it was, the, it was the German emperor in Germany who was appointing them. He was appointing Germans. I think we can understand why wouldn't, you wouldn't like it if your pastor was chosen by the rich man who loaned, owned your land. Well, that was going on. Um, and, and you know, in fact, the whole investiture, investiture is the ordination service. And it was the, the, the German emperor who would actually hand them their mitre and their staff. Well, that makes the point of who do they answer to? Well, they answered to him. And, of course, the pope didn't like that. 
these bishops and abbots, again, controlled wealthy and significant lands. And so Gregory VII sends a messenger up to the emperor, uh, Henry IV, ordering him to cease and desist immediately all this investing of clergy. Uh, so we have, now it's the papacy versus the emperor. Well, Henry, not surprisingly, was not going to take this. He utterly defied the Pope, and not surprisingly, he was supported by the abbots and by the bishops. Why? Because they were Germans. They'd been appointed by him and by his father. They, they thought in those sorts of ways. And so they are going to defy the Pope. So what does the Pope do? Well, Gregory, if you know him, if he's, if he's so intense that he's called a holy Satan, then he drops a nuclear option. The nuclear option is to excommunicate everybody. That's what he does. That's his, that's his strategy. This becomes the, the moral power. By the way, it's going to lose its influence the more they do it, you can imagine. But the moral power of kicking them out of the church of Jesus Christ was, was what he had. Now, with it, he gave the right to all their vassals to rebel against them. And so the people had a legitimacy in rebelling. And if you're a lesser lord... The king might have the gumption to stand up to it, but what about all his dukes and all of his counts and all of his knights? They're going to hell with him. And this begins to undermine the medieval structure of the empire. Um, And in fact, uh, Henry's allies began to abandon him rapidly. Well, in 10, so so Hildebrand wins round number one. So Henry IV, realizing that his so-called lords are meeting with the Pope to form a council to put a new emperor in place, he's not going to take that lying down. So what he does is he travels to Italy, and he goes to where the Pope is, and he abases himself before the Pope. And I mean abases himself. He stands outside the castle where the Pope is with his wife and children wearing peasant clothing and barefoot in the snow for three days the Holy Roman Emperor, begging uh, pardon of the, of, the, of the Pope and forgiveness. And, and the Pope won't see him. But there's one of the Pope's counselors, I think it was Peter Damiani, pretty good guy actually. And he's like, hey, aren't you supposed to be like showing mercy to people? He's asking for forgiveness in Christ's name. Isn't that, you know, somewhere in the mix of what a Pope does? And so after three days, Hildebrand cracks and he allows the, the Emperor in. You, you see the picture here is the emperor abasing himself before Pope Gregory VII. Now, Gregory's got a problem. He kind of has to give forgiveness. But here's the question. Is the emperor sincere? Well, in fact, the emperor then gets restored to his office. They disband the council. He goes back to Germany, and guess what he does? He raises an army. There goes round two. It goes to Henry IV. And he actually has to fight a civil war with uh, the guy who wanted to take his throne. He wins that civil war. And so what is it? But he's not, not going to sit up there and let the Pope do this again. He invades Italy and he conquers Rome. And Henry IV uh, takes, it, it takes over the, the city of, uh, of Rome. He actually imprisons Hildebrandt. He puts another German, Clement III, on the papal throne. Now, Gregory has his Norman allies, though, and this is the, uh, the William the Conqueror people, and they want legitimacy. They want, these are former Norsemen, recent former Norsemen, and so they actually do a sneak attack. They sack and burn the city of Rome, and they uh, rescue the Pope who dies in exile. Well, round two, I think that one's going to go to Henry IV. He takes that round, but there is a round three. 
Another pope regains control over most of Western Europe. The popes had a moral authority, which is what Hildebrand wanted them to have. Uh, And the people feared excommunication. And so he, finally it's Pope Paschal II, who who, uh, gets Henry V, uh, Henry IV's son, to surrender over, actually here's the compromise that worked out. They should have done this in the first place. Remember, this all started with the Pope not wanting the emperor to uh, determine who his bishops and abbots are. The Pope doesn't want them controlling all the land that their economy and military depends on. So a hundred years later, basically, they broker a deal that says, okay, we'll keep the church, you keep the lands. It's actually a good deal. Wouldn't it have been nice to have spared all the controversy? You know, one of the things you see in church history is sometimes it takes us a while to come to the right solution. And uh, the Lord has to get us there, but that's what happened with the investiture controversy. Now, that is the ongoing interplay of the church. Notice what the church is not doing. The church is not preaching the word of God. The church is not evangelizing people. The church is not fulfilling the Great Commission. The, the church is engaged in power politics as, as a, a, a rival to the princes for control of a worldly kingdom. What did Jesus say? My kingdom is not of this world. Well, the Pope's kingdom was of this world. Well, let's talk about the First Crusade. In 1009, the Muslims attacked Jerusalem and destroyed the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And uh, that was a grave offense to the European Christians. And so in 1095, Pope Urban IV preaches the First Crusade during a council in France. He he take up the cross to liberate the Holy Land from Islam. Now, Now, part of the issue was they needed a war. You have these military states, and your feudal kingdoms are military states. You have a king, princes, dukes, counts, and a whole lot of knights. It's this super-armed society, and they're killing each other, and they need to go kill somebody else. Kind of socially, that is very much what's going on. And so they unite on the cause of freeing the Holy Land from Islam. In 1095, they depart with between 250,000 to 300,000 heavily armed knights and men-at-arms. And it was successful. In 1097, they captured Nicaea. In uh, in 1098, the ancient city of Antioch. 1099, they captured Jerusalem and slaughter everyone there. Um, And the people are massacred. It was a military success. And it produces uh, four Christian kingdoms in the Holy Land. Well, the main point of the First Crusade was to unify Europe under the papacy. It gave the Pope, the, 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 he was a spiritual leader. He was rallying the armies of Europe. Uh, and the princes wanted war. Uh, that's how you got booty. That's how you became famous. If you wanted to become rich, you needed to conquer somebody and take their things. And so you needed adventure. And, and so there was, there was a, a, a desire for that. Uh, we would say the biggest problem was the uh, development of the indulgence system, which dates back to the First uh, Crusade. And it works like this. The Pope needs people to go, and so he makes the claim anyone who takes up the cross will have his or her sins forgiven. In fact, that cross emblem associated with the Crusaders, they wore the badge of the white cross on their, on their shields, on their livery. That was a symbol that the Pope had given them. They called it an indulgence, the remission of all their sins. Now, uh, the problem was other people said, whoa, 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 we want to go on the crusade. 
we want to have our sins forgiven as well. And so they would say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm old, I'm infirmed, I can't go to the Crusades, or, or you know, I, have, I play a key role in society, I really can't leave, but why can't I get an indulgence? So the Pope's going to cut him slack, and what he, he argues is, well, that's fine. If you pay for another man to go in your place, both of you will get the indulgence. You'll both get, he'll wear the cross and you'll get the benefit of it and everyone will have their sins forgiven according to the Pope. This introduces the selling of indulgences. The first crusade in 1095, by the time you get to the Protestant Reformation, it's a colossal issue. The idea, by the way, uh, uh, Pope Benedict, the recent one, Cardinal Ratzinger, when he became Pope, he announced a plenary indulgence for under certain conditions. The, the idea that the Pope has authority to give forgiveness of sin, of course, apart from faith in Christ, no mention of the blood of Christ. It's just the supposed spiritual sovereignty of the Bishop of Rome. Wrap up with the great theologian of the 11th century, who is Anselm of Canterbury. He lives from 1033 to 1109. He's actually an Italian. He becomes a monk, and he actually doesn't want to be a bishop. He doesn't want to be uh, in charge of things, but they, he's just so impressive that they kind of force him into it. And he ends up at, at Canterbury in Kent, which is uh, going to be uh, southeastern England, the spiritual center of England, and he is the head of the church in England in the 11th century. Well, he's a great theologian and writer. He wrote two famous books. The first is Proslogion, where he deals with the question of faith and reason. And here's the perennial question. People will say, I don't feel like I can believe it until I figured it out. I need understanding. I need, I need to reason it out before I give my faith to it. And Anselm's going to say, you know, it actually works the other way around. You don't understand until you've accepted it by faith. Anselm uh, wants us to believe the gospel, the Christian teaching, on the basis of the authority of God's word. And he argues that faith actually is key to understanding. It is those who believe God's word to whom he grants understanding. Now there's a very high spirituality, rightly so there, of truth. Jesus said, I will send my spirit. He will lead you into all truth. And so it's by believing. We don't believe ignorantly. But we believe on the basis of the clear teaching of the word of God because it is the word of God and it is faith that produces reason. That, of course, will be challenged. He also develops the ontological argument for God. I, I won't go into it, but you may have heard of it. God is that than which no greater can be con- conceived. Uh, very famous, maybe not that helpful to everyone. Well, he writes one of the greatest books in the history of the church called Cur Deus Homo. Why the God-man? Why did God become man? And it's actually a series of dialogues with a pilgrim who comes, who's a spiritually earnest person. His name is Bozo. And Bozo's going to ask Bozo. Actually, it happened. Bozo shows up in Canterbury. They have all these meetings. Bozo answers, asks questions, and very pastorally, Anselm begins answering them. He decides he needs to publish this. And it particularly centers on the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, amazing as it is, as it is, Up until this point, while the church had always believed that Jesus died for our sins, there was a rather significant error in the general understanding of the doctrine of the atonement. And it's called the ransom theory. The idea was that Jesus died to pay his blood as a ransom for our sin. You go, now hold it, that's what Jesus said. 
Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. No doubt. Amen. The problem is that they understood that the ransom of Christ's death was paid to Satan. And so, and Augustine's version of it is the the, the mousetrap theory, that Jesus baited Satan. He offered his death to Satan, but when Satan took it, it was too strong for him and he overcame his kingdom. He, He ate it and was poisoned as it were. Well, that may be eloquent, but it's not exactly true for this reason. As Anselm points out, you know, Satan doesn't really own you. He actually has no real rights. He, he has a usurpation of a kingdom. But the, thing, the reason that Jesus died was to pay his blood as a ransom, not to Satan, but to the law of God. That's what really holds us under thrall. We're guilty before a holy God. Christ died to assuage the law. Uh, Anselm put it more in terms of God's honor, but that was his idea, very helpfully. We call it, in its mature form, penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus paid the penalty to, as a substitute to atone for our sins. He paid the debt. This is Anselm's old language. In fact, let me just read Anselm. The question is, why did God become man? He says, it would not have been right for the restoration of human nature to be left undone, and it could not have been done unless a man paid what was owing to God for sin. Look, it was man who sinned against God. Man has to pay the debt. He continues, but the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. This is the reason for the incarnation. Why the God-man? Because man owed the debt, but only, only God could pay it. Only the Son of God could die on the cross and yet, and yet live and, and satisfy it with his perfect life. Thus it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person so that he who in his own nature ought to pay and could not should be in a person who could. The life of this one man was so sublime, so precious, that it can suffice to pay what is owing for the sins of the whole world and infinitely more. Amen. Now, when we speak about the blood of Christ, we don't mean the physical blood. We mean it's a symbol of his death. And because he is the infinitely glorious Son of God, that his death is sufficient to pay the debt of sin for everyone who believes. It is for that reason that Jesus was, became man. Well, that is the 11th century as uh, Western Christendom begins moving its way forward to the final clash that will take place in the Protestant Reformation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you're in charge of history. Thank you that this gives us a perspective on what we're going through today. What are some of the pitfalls the church has had before? We think of the way the, the Roman church lost its sense of a, of a heavenly kingdom, became interested only in an earthly kingdom, uh, usurped an authority it did not have. Father, help us to make the gospel our mission and Christ our only authority, our only Savior. As Anselm said, he became man that we might live in him. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.